questions this morning to begin with, uh, as with last week. What is God like? How is God? How might God accurately be described? What is God like? Or another way of asking this might be, who is God? And if the projector was working and the screen was working, uh, the words, who is God, would be up there right now. You see it, envision it. Look through the honeycomb, think catacomb, envision who is God. Many of us have taken at face value that God is. Many of us haven't asked too many questions. We haven't wrestled with what's behind the curtain. We haven't been drawn into deeper matters. We haven't worried with more profound questions. We have accepted the straightforward things that we have been taught or learned or assumed, and then gone on with that, content to not ask many questions or to feel like we have to know everything. And there is a humility in that. And then there are others of us who can't help but ask more profound or existential questions, whether articulated with words or in conversations or simply in the thoughts and the meditations of our own minds and hearts. Who is God? What is God like? How might God best be described? And how can I know? How can I know? Our church's constitution has some answers for that. Our uh, church's constitution, the Presbyterian church, is made up of two parts, and I forgot to bring those this morning, but uh, one is called the Book of Order, and one is called the Book of Confessions. They complement the scriptures and are subservient to the scriptures, of course. But the Book of Confessions is a uh, book that contains the universal and reformed creeds, confessions, and catechisms from the earliest centuries, a compilation of the best of those, seeking to put into clear language for people of each time period what it is the scriptures say. One of those confessions, the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in 1647, has this to say about God. And because this is very wordy, it's up on the screen for you to read along with. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving in iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. That's what it says. Very helpful, huh? Makes you want to open the book of confessions and take a nap. Now, the Westminster Larger Confession was also written in 1647 as a supplement to the, or the Westminster Larger Catechism as a supplement to the confession to help people learn, and it was used as a learning tool, so it was written in a question and answer format. So it's a little simpler and a little clearer. Here is what question number seven and answer number seven say. What is God? And the answer to that question is God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. 
all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Which is all very helpful, even if it's a little lofty in its level. At the opposite end of the spectrum, a first grader was drawing with crayons in his class one day. His teacher came up to him and said, that looks very interesting, what are you drawing? And he said with some incredulity and a little bit of pride, it's God. To which his teacher responded, no one, no one really knows what God looks like. To which he responded, they will when I'm finished. But what do the scriptures uh, look like, say God looks like? How did Jesus describe God? Who is God? We'll read uh, in just a moment from the scriptures, but first, uh, let me again pray. Help us, God, in our time of worship to be uh, listeners as well, to be attentive to you, to your word, to your will, and to your way. Help us to set aside our prejudices, the things that we have leaned on, uh, that we might be fully available to you. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are good and fertile soil to receive your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they would be taken to heart. If my words in any way are inconsistent with your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So in the Bible, one of the four Gospels was written by one of Jesus' disciples named John. And in the back of the New Testament, there are three letters that also seem to be written by this same John. They're called 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. The Bible is very original in those names. And each of those letters is not, though, a, like a vacation postcard that you would send to someone to say, Hi, how are you? Good to see you. Long time no see. I hope you are well. Goodbye. But rather, they were written to particular people, to particular bodies of Christ for particular reasons, and usually in the New Testament, the letters are written with the intent of correcting uh, the church in some way that it has gone wrong, that it has deviated from truth and from orthodoxy and from the teachings of Jesus and the earliest church, hoping to bring them back to the center. And that's what's going on in this letter as well, and in the verses that we will read, it's important to remember that as we go along. Beginning at chapter 4 of 1 John, uh, verse 7, listen closely, this is the word of God. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone loves, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. No one has ever seen God. God. Abraham received three visitors seemingly from heaven, but Abraham didn't see God. 
Moses interacted with a burning bush through which God spoke, the voice of God, but Moses didn't see God. Isaiah recorded that he had seen God, but Isaiah is also clear that what he's seen is not a tangible person or being, but a vision of God. No one has ever seen God. And so how do we know what God is like, how God is, and so also who God is? In the first chapter of his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul wrote, What may be known about God is plain because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature even, have been clearly seen, in other words, in creation, in nature, through nature, being understood from what has been made. Being understood from creation, from what we can see and touch and climb on and hold. And yet human beings have longed to know more about God than that God is simply creator. And God who is creator has long desired to be known as more than just creator. Because God has always been more than just creator. And so it's no surprise that theologians working backwards you might say, describe how God created in love, out of love, with love, for the sake of love, because of love. God created in love, with love, out of love, for the sake of love, because of love. God didn't create because God was bored. God didn't create because God had to. God didn't create because he wanted to keep up with the Joneses' God in some galaxy far, far away. God created because God is love. You remember last week how, that, how we talked about how we must understand the word love when we come across it in the scriptures, in the Bible, particularly the Hebrew word hesed in the Old Testament and the Greek word agape in the New Testament. They don't refer to romantic love. They don't refer to love of pizza, for example. I know Valentine's Day is just around the corner. We are already inundated with uh, red hearts, pink hearts, uh, chocolates in the shape of hearts. Millions of roses will be bought, given, and enjoyed. None of that has anything to do, really, with the biblical ideas of love. And so it can be quite confusing for us. You remember last week we were reminded that C.S. Lewis said this is what the word love means in the scriptures. To unselfishly choose for another's highest good. Love is unselfishly choosing for another's highest good. John Stott, uh, a renowned 20th century, uh, lived until about eight or nine years ago, a New Testament scholar, preacher, pastor, leader in the world Christian movement, uh, said these things about love by definition. Love is self-sacrifice, the seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost or expense. This is love. This is what the scriptures most often mean by love. We have to set aside all the romance, the feelings, the emotions that we so often associate with the word love. 
And it is out of such love and with such love and through such love that God created and that God sustains and that God redeems and that God saves because, because, because God in his very essence is love. How do we know that though? We know that from the scriptures though so much through so many theological proclamations, descriptions of God with his people and eventually with Jesus, through Jesus. From the beginning of his public ministry until the end of his public ministry and even to the point of the cross, Jesus unselfishly chose for others. Think about it, all the stories you know, all of the interactions with Jesus. He unselfishly chose for the benefit of others. For the good of children, for the good of older people, for the good of insiders and outsiders, for the good of people who were humble, for the good of those who were proud, for the good of the poor and for the good of the, for the, good of the rich, for the good of women, for the good of men, for the good of Jews, for the good of Gentiles, for the good of citizens, for the good of non-citizens. Consistently, always, every time, Jesus is choosing for the good of other people. And then like no serious and right-minded person before him ever did, Jesus had the audacity to say in John's gospel, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What you see in me is God the Father. If you want to know what God the Father is like, look at me, an audacious statement. We may think of ourselves as sinners in the hands of an angry God, especially if we are Presbyterian, if we live in the stream of Jonathan Edwards. We may think of God as angry or stuffy or dogmatic. Think about the way that you think about God. We may think of God as a judge or a prosecutor or a jailer or an unhappy teacher. We may think of God as an accountant or a private investigator who is looking into our lives and our hearts. We may have been shaped by experiences, our own experiences, that think of God as a father, but a father who is absent, or a father who is alcoholic, or a father who is abusive, or a father who is apathetic, or a father who is angry. But Jesus described God as a father who is patient, and who is kind, and who is tender, and who is generous, who is relentless in his desire to forgive, and unwavering and undeterred in his love for his children. We are, according to Jesus, sinners in the hands of a loving God. And this was so well known by the first generation of Christians who had walked with Jesus and been shaped by Jesus through walking with him. And it was so well known even by the second generation of Christians who had lived in close proximity to those who had been personally apprenticed by Jesus. That when they gathered every week to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, those gatherings became known as love feasts as love feasts, which stirred up all kinds of rumors, as you might imagine, among those outside the church and outside of that circle. But this was who they were because this is who Jesus was, because this was and is who God was and is. 
So much so that John would write to some people in Christ who were getting off track and forgetting what they had been taught and what they had learned. These words, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Oozes down from the mountaintops. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not know God, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And he paints this picture of any interaction with God is going to rub off on a person. The person who knows personally God is going to be affected by this person and by who he is. Neither the Greek nor the English grammar allow us to conclude from John's statement that, God, that because God is love, love is also God, as if the word is is simply an equal sign. That's not what John is saying. Nor is John saying that love is God's only characteristic, that love is God's only trait. God is certainly also just and holy and righteous and good but above all of these things, John asserts, God is love, this self-giving being, this being who does what is best for the other and who pours himself out for such. And it is because God is the wellspring of love and the furnace of love that God wills love, God chooses love, God exacts love, he expresses love, he exhibits love, God demonstrates love, Paul wrote to the Romans. We tend to forget that in the era of Jesus. This was the most radical thought one could come up with, especially among Jews. For centuries now, in the context in which John writes, in the context into which Jesus was born. The Romans and the Greeks before them had oppressed this whole region of the earth, had ruled over them, had had dominion over them, had taken away their freedom. And century after century after century, there were uprisings, even and especially among the Jewish people, to revolt, to push back, and to do so violently. There were group after group after group who were terrorists in the name of the God of Israel. The zealots were only one of those groups. There were as many as 25 or 30 in the time of Jesus who sought to rise up against the Roman government to take back over their country to govern themselves once again. And in all of that, in all of the anger, in all of the revolt, comes one who accepts the title of king, but not a king by force, a king by love. And so Jesus redefines everything. And when the Jews are tempted to slip back into their other way. When Peter slices off the ear of Malthus on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the only example ever of any violence in the first generation coming from Jesus' people. Because that was the norm and Peter thought that was the norm and now we're gonna fight back and Jesus says, get behind me, Peter. This is not what we are about and he heals 
or loves this Roman soldier. Jesus completely redefines reality, who God is, what God is about. He will rule and power, but not with the power of force, but the power of love, because this is who God is. And technology will fail us. Feelings of love, emotions of love, relationships will fail. Marriages will fail, husbands will fail, wives will fail. But love, this self-giving of oneself to others, generously denying oneself, will never fail, Paul declares to the Corinthians. One day, Mother Teresa took, a woman, took in a woman off the streets of Calcutta. Her body was a mess of open sores infested with bugs. Mother Teresa patiently bathed her cleaning and dressing her wounds. The woman never stopped shrieking insults and threats at Mother Teresa, who only smiled. Finally, the woman snarled, Sister, why are you doing this? Not everyone behaves like you. Who taught you? And Mother Teresa replied simply, My God taught me. When the woman asked who this God was, because they were in India, and there are many gods in India, Mother Teresa kissed her on the forehead and said, you know my God. My God is called love. Who is God? How is God? What is God like? There are many ways that we could answer those questions. The Westminster Catechism and Confession answer in broad terms and in many ways. John says to the early Christians, you've gotten off track and you've forgotten the nature of the one who called us and who has loved us and saved us in Jesus. Come back to the center. Get back on track. Remember, God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him, John continues. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. This is the quintessential, the ultimate expression of God's love that we've seen so many ways through the scriptures and in the life of Jesus. But then we reach the pinnacle, and John writes, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and his only son, he didn't have any others, into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it just so turns out that this God and who and how he is, who he is, is exactly what we need, exactly what we have longed for, exactly who we have longed for. Oswald Chambers once wrote, God loved me, not because I was lovable, but because it was his nature to do so. God loved me, not because I was lovable, but because it was his very nature to do so. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
Help us to sort through, God, all of the ways that we have understood you, been in relationship with you, looked to you, feared you, thought of you. Thank you that you have come to us as you are, as it turns out, as love, in love, with love, through love, for love. Not because we are lovable, because we know that in so many ways we have not been and we aren't and won't be. But thank you for your mercy, your outpouring of love in Christ by which you reconciled us to you, humanity to the divine, atoning for our sin, our brokenness, our failures, our transgressions, and our debts. Thank you for your mercy. Awaken us into your life. Help us to love you with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. And to live in and through you. Exhibiting that through love for one another. We pray and ask these things in Christ the Lord. Amen.